Hebrews chapter 12. And let's read together in unison Hebrews 12, 1-17. Uh, last time I read it for you, and you can join me in the reading of this text this Sunday. I apologize, I don't have a PowerPoint for us to look at this morning, but we have our Scriptures, and maybe that's better this way. So let's read together Hebrews 12, 1-17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves." and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come again to your word this morning, your inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word. We submit ourselves to its authority. Christ, You are our King, and You have earned the right to rule over all of our suffering. We pray that You would teach us from these words and many others this morning how to consider You in all of our suffering. Do a work in us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus. In His glory, in His name I pray, Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning I want to finish with all of you the message on suffering that I couldn't wait to share with you in returning from the conference down in Grand Rapids 
sovereignty and suffering. This is a message that we received so kindly from Joel Beakey. And he called it ending in Christ and all of our suffering. I'm calling it simply consider Him. The suffering of every believer is accompanied by a battle of the mind. Is it not? Sometimes the mental struggle to hold on to hope or honoring thoughts is more difficult than even the the discomfort of the body in those moments of suffering. Sometimes suffering is merely a spiritual mental battle. I'm uh, thankful to be able to walk through these things with all of you because especially last Sunday as we listened to one another's thanksgiving, we shared a common theme that the Lord is at work among us, particularly through the instrument of suffering in so many different ways. And so these are things we need to be thinking about and, and considering carefully. You know, when, you're, when, you, when you come into a physical season of physical suffering, as I said, it's never, it's never just a, a physical trial. It's always a mental trial. Think of some of the mental challenges that come along with suffering. There's certainly sensing guilt, right? Guilt is brought up in front of your mind's eye and you think, why is, why is this happening to me? Despair, a sense of hopelessness, shame, uh, fear. Many different things come to us. A sense of purposelessness. Wondering about the future. Think about the mental battles that your mind walks through whenever you are under a season of suffering by the hand of God. So what are we to do? How are we to think in response to that? How would Christ have us to lead our minds? How would the Holy Spirit lead our minds? And how can we take every thought captive? to the obedience of Christ. And this is the main idea of this particular two-part series. The main idea, you can see it on the top of your outline there. In all of your suffering, consider Him. I wonder this morning, and I can relate with this myself in different seasons of suffering that come and go. Since we talked about this two weeks ago, did you think of these truths when you felt weary or pain or a little bit of suffering even over the last two weeks? Did you remember Christ? See, it's going to be so easy for us to just hear this message and then then leave and maybe even forget it. Sometimes the experience of gathering together as the body of Christ and hearing the Word and even being moved by the Word can become almost a deceptive thing in that we think we've changed. We think we've been truly affected in our character by the message. But remember what James tells us. It's easy to be self-deluded hearers who look in the mirror, have a spiritual experience in times of gathered, gathering around the Word, and then leave and forget what kind of men and women we are and do nothing to actually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, do what the Word of God calls us to do. So I want to really bring our focus to that point as we begin here to say let's let's not be 
self-deluded hearers of this word this morning. Let's be doers who act. Because God promises in that text that doers who act will be blessed by His grace to actually do what He's called us to do. So I, it's my hope, it's my prayer that each one of us, including myself, will never respond to suffering in the same way. That in our suffering, we will indeed consider Christ in all of these facets of His glory. And so that our minds will be different, our responses will be different, and we will honor Him in all of our suffering. Christ is a diamond of many facets. In all of our suffering, what should we then consider about Christ? And our main idea, as we said, is taken from chapter 12 of Hebrews in verse 3. Consider Him. When you suffer, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Last time, two weeks ago, in Consider Him Part 1, we looked at the first five facets of Christ, the passion of Christ, the power of Christ, the presence of Christ, the patience and perseverance of Christ, and the prayers of Christ. And this morning, let's begin number six, the promises of Christ. Consider the promises of Christ in His Word. Afflictions are burdensome, and they often are very bitter. But the promises of Christ are like honey to sweeten our afflictions. The promises of God are so immensely rich. Here are some of my favorite promises. Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you shall go. I will guide you with my eye upon you. Psalm 37, 4 and 5, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto Him. Trust in Him, and He will act. Psalm 121, there are many promises there. He will not let you, your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. Psalm 91, For He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. He who dwells in the shadow, uh, in the shadow of the Almighty will abide in the, in the secret place of the Lord. Psalm 138, verse 8, The Lord will fulfill His purposes for me. Isaiah 26, 3, You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 40, 31, But they who wait for the Lord shall gain new strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 41, 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. How about Romans 8, 37-39? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or how about 1 Corinthians 10.13? No temptation has taken you, but what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you will be able to bear it. Or 2 Corinthians 12.9, but he said to me what? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13.5 and 6, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What shall I fear? What can man do to me? James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you keep the promises of God before you? Continually. Keep them. That's why he gives them to you. Promises. You can live on the promises of God. They're the one thing that is actually sure. Keep them in your memory. Tape them up around your house, around your workplace. So many people write with an expo marker some sort of positive mental attitude saying on their mirror, right? You can do it, or whatever. I don't know. Why do we write that kind of stuff? Why not write the promises of God that are sure? We are to live by these promises. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's the one thing we can actually count them. Put them down on cards. Memorize them. You have to memorize the promises of God. Did you know that? Because you don't always have a Bible to open when you need them. You have to memorize them. There is no excuse. If you have a mind that can collect information, you must Memorize the Word of God, the promises of God. You will need it. You will need it. Who knows, one day you might be isolated from community because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Then what will you have? Only what you have memorized. You need to live by the promises of Christ. Think about them. Read them. Pray about them over and over. Especially those that have been made special and precious to you. What promises have been made precious to you. You see, this is how life is as a child of God. There's certain promises that at certain times the Holy Spirit makes precious to you. That's Christ speaking to you. Let your soul marinate on those promises. Visit them over and over again. Consider Christ in all of these promises. You see, none of the promises would be for us except that we are in Christ. You realize that? Ephesians 2, 11-13 describes the spiritual state of an unbeliever and it says that we are apart from God, strangers to the covenant of promises. None of the promises would be for you unless you're in Christ. But all the promises 
are yours in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.21, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And because you're in Christ, all of those promises become exceedingly precious to you and a gracious gift to energize your faith and ground your hope and stir your joy and advance your salvation. 2 Peter 1, 3-4, His divine power has granted to us, these words are so packed, you have to just listen to them very carefully. 2 Peter 1, 3-4, and by the way, let me, let me make this note. I am going to give you so many texts today. Don't try to look them up. Just jot down the references and go and enjoy them later. Okay? 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness through what? Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. Think of that. Through the knowledge of Jesus Christ given in the Scriptures, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Do you believe that? Does your practice prove that you believe that? When you need deep spiritual aid, do you believe that the knowledge of Christ is all that you need? by which He has granted to us, through the knowledge of Christ, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, listen, so that through the precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Sinful desires in the heart will deceive you. The promises of God will tell you the truth. And they will enable you to actually share in the likeness of the character of God. Just ruminate on 1 Peter 1, 3-4 and let it draw your heart to the promises of God. Has God made His promises precious to you? Which of them? Which of them? Promises made precious to you by the Holy Spirit assure you that you are indeed a child of God. They give you a foundation upon which to pray by faith. And they enable you to endure the deepest affliction. When you have family worship together and you come across those promises that are precious and sweet to you, tell your children about them. Psalm 78, 1-8 says that kind of thing. Tell them to your children. Tell to your children the wonderful works of God. Tell them stories. Tell your children stories about the suffering, about the promises, about how God has made those promises precious to you and how His promises and grace strengthen you to endure faithfully. And they'll remember those stories. And they'll remember the promises. And they will be helped by them and prepared for when they suffer affliction. Our children need to know these things. They need to hear how the Word of God has helped mom and dad deal with suffering here, and there, and here, and here, and here through your life and through the Scriptures. They need to hear about the wonderful works of God through His promises. Think of the saints who have gone before us faithfully and what accomplished and what they accomplished and endured by clinging to the promises of God. 
Hebrews 11, 32-34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. What is the object of your faith? Christ and the promises. So in all of your afflictions, turn continually to Christ and the promises. Remember that old hymn? Or maybe it's a gospel song? Standing on the promises? Here's the second and third verse. Standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ, the Lord, bound to Him eternally by love's strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God. In all of your suffering, consider the promises of Christ. And the greatest promise of all, I will come quickly. And my reward is with me. Christ promises to be your anchor, your ballast, your hope, your joy, your peace in the midst of all your suffering. Number six, the promises of Christ. Number seven, the plentitude of Christ. What's that word? Plentitude. He is plenty. He is fullness. He is all that we need and much more. Are you confident, and we alluded to this earlier, are you confident that Christ has all that you need to endure any and every affliction? Think about that question. And again, does your practice bear that out? Do you believe that Christ has everything that you need? Do you turn to Him in all of your difficulties and find Him to be who He is, complete? In Christ there is bread enough and to spare. Again, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Just consider, if you consider the plentitude of Christ, consider the plentitude of Christ in His names. It reveals the fullness of who He is. There are over 280 names, titles, and symbols of Christ in the Bible. 280. Here's just a few. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. Man of Sorrows. Lamb of God. Emmanuel. What does that mean? What does it mean? God with us. Redeemer, Lord, King, Savior, Light of the world, Bread of life, Resurrection and the life, The door, the good shepherd, The way, the truth, and the life, The true vine, the Lord, our righteousness, Our propitiation, our advocate, Our rock, Lion of Judah, Alpha and Omega, And many more. You see, remember, these names Are not merely tags so that we don't mix up Jesus with someone else. These names are literal descriptions of His perfections. Each descriptive title reveals what He is like in His nature, in His role, in His function, in His authority and capacity. These names reveal who He is and what He can do. Consider the fullness of His plentitude. Colossians 1, 15-19 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Colossians 2, 9 and 10 say, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Consider the fullness of Christ is plentitude to meet your every need in any season of affliction. He is all that you need. He will be and He is. He is exactly the sinless and supreme Savior that you need. Consider not just the names of Christ if you're exploring this ocean of Christ, but consider His offices. What are His offices? His messianic offices. Prophet, priest, and king. Christ is your prophet. He speaks God's Word to you. He teaches you. He guides you. He leads you. He is a priest. He intercedes for you. He sacrificed Himself for you. He is there to bless you. To pray for you. And He is our King. He rules over us. He rules all of our suffering. He rules every detail of our lives. He rules even our own hearts. Consider the natures of Christ. That He is God and man. See, Christ who lives in you by His Spirit is God. Almighty God. Creator. Lord. The self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-existent One. That's Christ. But He's also man. He is sinless, sympathetic, merciful Savior to whose throne you can come boldly to find grace and mercy and help in time of need. He is all in all, Colossians 3.11 says. Swim in the ocean of His plentitude. Spurgeon said something like this, Christ is an ocean of fullness to His people. Little fish, swim at your leisure and drink in all you can. You will never drink this ocean dry. There is more in Christ than you could possibly know. And all of eternity will be exploring the plentitude of Christ, won't it? All of eternity. There are things about Christ. You don't know the half. We don't even know this much of who Christ is and what He can do. All of eternity will be the greatest delight and satisfaction in knowing and exploring the fullness of Christ. And so He will help you through. He will help you through your suffering so that you may arrive safely home. There is no suffering on earth that can exhaust the greatness, the goodness, the glory of His plentitude. So consider the plentitude of Christ in all of your suffering. Number eight, the preciousness of Christ. Christ Himself is precious. This is a word that is referred to, that refers to Him in the Scriptures. He's precious, valuable. He's our treasure. And His blood is precious. Doesn't the Scripture say that the blood of Christ is precious? 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on Him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. He is precious to those who are in Him. To the world, He's foolishness. 
but to you who believe, he is precious. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ is precious and His blood is precious. Do you know the Bible is a bloody book? Have you noticed that as you've read it through? The gates of Eden were closed to mankind in our sinfulness. The gates of heaven have been opened to all who believe through the precious blood of Christ. God sacrificed an animal in the place of Adam and Eve and God sewed skins to cover Adam and Eve in their guilt and shame. God sacrificed His Son in our place and clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Blood runs through Scripture from beginning to end. In fact, this will be the song of eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Substitutionary blood gloriously restores all that sin destroyed Through His blood, the last Adam has undone what the first Adam undid, reconciling sinners to Himself. The blood of Christ is so capable. It is so precious. You you know why it's precious? It's precious, first of all, because of Christ's own worth. His infinite worth as a being. But it's also precious because of what it's purchased for us. The blood of Christ is has purchased to us complete salvation. Here's a a smattering of references. Christ's blood justifies us. Romans 5 and verse 9. Christ's blood made propitiation for us. Romans 3.25 Christ's blood purchased forgiveness for us. Hebrews 9.22 Christ's blood purchased peace for us, peace with God, Colossians 1.20. Christ's blood redeemed us, Hebrews 1.7. I'm sorry, Ephesians 1.7. Christ's blood brought us near, Ephesians 2.13. Christ's blood sanctifies us, Hebrews 13.12. 1 John 1.7. Christ's blood opens the way for prayer, Hebrews 10, 19. Christ's blood made us His flock, His church. Acts 20, verse 28. Christ's blood assures us. Hebrews 9, 14. Christ's blood equips us with all we need. Hebrews 13, 20. Christ's blood secures us. Hebrews 9, 12. Christ's blood makes us victorious. Revelation 12, 11. I love that text that those in Christ have overcome by the word of the testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Christ's blood opens heaven for us, where we will forever delight in the one who is most precious to us. So when you suffer, consider the preciousness of Christ, the preciousness of His blood, and you'll be lifted to understand that in your many losses, you possess and cannot lose that which is most precious and infinitely valuable. You have Christ. And you have His blood. Number nine, the purposes of Christ. The purposes of Christ. 
in our suffering, we need to consider the purposes of Christ. <clears throat> what are the purposes of Christ? Well, generally, he, speaking, he, he lived to do his Father's will. John 9, I'm sorry, John 6, 38-39 speaks of this. Hebrews 10, 7-9 as well. It says he, he came, he delights to do the will of the Father. John 6, 38-39 refers to Christ doing the will of him who sent him. In Christ, in doing that will, he consecrated himself, he completely devoted himself through suffering to sanctify us, to save us, to set us apart to the truth. We see that in John 17, verse 19. I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. Ephesians 5, 25-27 speaks of this as well, that Christ sanctified himself to give us to give himself up for us through suffering so that we would be sanctified. Through his suffering, he, Christ, merited eternal life for us. And through his suffering, through the giving up of himself, he sanctifies us, he cleanses us in order to present us someday, his church, to himself and to his Father, without spot or wrinkle or any blemish at all. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And of course, Jude 24 and 25 anticipates that day where we will be presented before the throne of God with great joy, blamelessly. That is the purpose of Christ for us. He lived, he suffered, he died, he rose, he intercedes for us in order to make us God-centered in all things so that we would live to imitate our Father and be comforted or conformed to the image of the Son. You see that in Romans 8, 28-34. All things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to the purpose. The purpose of being conformed to the image of His Son. In fact, God has invested Christ and all things in Him so that we would be conformed to that image and bring Him glory. Romans 8, 32. If He did not spare His own Son but deliver him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so Christ, not only as his own purpose, has employed his own suffering to sanctify you and to make you blameless and Christ-like to present you before himself and his Father at the throne someday, but Christ also employs your suffering for the same purposes. Not that your suffering is redemptive, but your suffering in the hands of Christ, is transformative. And that is sweet to know. Christ suffered to make you God-centered and Trinitarian-shaped in all of your thinking and desiring and living. Christ employs your suffering to make you God-centered and he, he wants you to become like Himself. Consider the purposes of Christ for you in your suffering. We've already mentioned it. To make you like Christ. Romans 8, 28. To bring you to repentance. Luke 13, 4-5. To cause you to rely upon Him. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. To form righteousness in you. Hebrews 12, 6, 10 and 11. To prepare for, to prepare for you a reward in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4.17 
to remind you of Christ and all that you have in Christ continually. Philippians 3.10 To see the glory of God displayed in your life. John 9.1-3 You know, He makes you willing to suffer anything for His glory. That's what He does through suffering. Suffering, season after season of trial, we begin to see the good that God does in us, the glory that we experience and we see. And pretty soon we, we are enabled to say, there's no suffering too great. I want to see the glory of God. I want to be used of God. He makes us submissive and responsive to the mind of the Spirit in obeying Him and His Word. Romans 8, 12-27. He employs our suffering to humble us by revealing to us what's in our hearts. Deuteronomy 8.2 You know, suffering vacuums away the fuel that feeds our pride. Have you noticed that? It's employed, Christ employs our suffering to, so that we seek Him early. Early in the day. Early in life. Early in the affliction. Hosea 5.15 he employs our suffering to keep us close to Him. Have you noticed that it's this effect on you like that? It keeps you close. It keeps you in His Word. It keeps you in communion with Christ. Psalm 73, 26-28. It keeps you in His Word. Psalm 119, 67, 71, 75, 107. David writes there, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Right? Oh, wow, how suffering drives us to the Word of Christ, to fellowship with Christ. Affliction will rub off the rust on the lock of your heart so that your heart will be opened wide to receive and enjoy greater communion with Christ. Just consider, here's another way of looking at it. There's, there's so much to, to enjoy with this and to understand. Consider the purposes that Christ accomplishes in our suffering that are even just revealed in the letter of James. All of us know the letter of James to be a, a letter that guides us through trials, right? Take the whole book that way. One could argue that every lesson that the letter of James offers can be learned through the heat of suffering. As we taught through the letter of James uh, several months ago now, this is kind of a pressure that came back to me again and again. The book begins in the furnace of affliction, right? And then it's like all these lessons come out of that. The, our hearts are exposed in the furnace of affliction and the lessons might be learned. So what are they? Well, if I just mentally walk through the letter of James, here's what I come up with. And you can just listen and maybe look through the letter of James later. This is, this is James 1-5, through 5, really fast. What does Christ want to teach us? He'll prove our faith genuine through trials. He'll produce within us steadfastness in Christ-like virtues. He matures us and makes us whole Christians. He teaches us wisdom. He teaches us to hold loosely to and weans us from the things of the world. In fact, Thomas Watson said that affliction is God's way of yanking the loose tooth of the world from your mouth that once removed does not much bother you anymore. It prepares great reward for us. It causes us to discern temptation to sin and overcome it. Suffering gives us every good gift from the Father. I'm still in chapter 1. Form within us a meek, 
rather than angry response to God's word. Causes us to overcome sin. Makes us doers of the word rather than self-deluded hearers. It forms true religion in us rather than pretentious religion. Suffering overcomes partiality in us. Isn't it interesting how suffering in your own lives helps you to see beyond the surface of people? Because you've been where they are a little bit more. And you can, you, when you see someone on the surface that's different than someone, you think, you know what? Maybe they've been through some really tough days. Suffering helps you to see beyond the surface and not be so partial. It's an amazing gift that suffering gives us. It extracts self-righteousness from us. It tames our tongues. Aren't we much slower to speak after we've suffered? It has so many effects on us, doesn't it? It certainly does. Wisdom in relationship with others. It helps us to see underneath our conflicts to the selfishness of our own heart's desires and makes us humble and submissive to God's greater desires for us. It removes from us boastful, presumptive planning of our lives. How often since trials do we start to say, well, I don't know what tomorrow brings, right? Trials teach us not to plan so presumptively. But to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. That's James. It sets right our priorities. Doesn't, doesn't trials, doesn't suffering make your priorities all rearranged? It certainly does, for the better. It gives us patience, teaches patience and contentment and, and, and shows us mercy. Gives us, makes us merciful. It, it causes us to receive great blessing. It makes us intensely earnest about overcoming sin and it makes us devoted and eager to bring wandering sinners home to Christ. That's what I see, James 1-5. through You learn more from suffering than you do from prosperity. When suffering causes us to be able to willingly say, take me, use me, consecrate me, my whole being to you, then you'll experience, like Stephen, that the stones that hit you will only knock you closer to the chief cornerstone. Affliction is God's pencil for drawing the image of Christ more fully upon you. Affliction teaches you to walk by faith. In pleasant times, we talk about living otherworldly, but in adversity, we begin to live our talk. In all of your sufferings, consider the purposes of Christ for your suffering. And the losses that you will feel will begin to be overshadowed by the greater gains. So, consider the promises of Christ the preciousness of Christ, the plentitude of Christ, the purposes of Christ, and finally, number 10, the plan of Christ. What is the final, ultimate plan? In all of your suffering, it is what we must consider, the final, ultimate plan of Christ. Just as God the Father had an ultimate plan for the suffering of Christ, so Christ has an ultimate plan for our suffering. What was the Father's plan? What was the Father's ultimate plan for the suffering of Christ? Doesn't Philippians 2, 6-11 tell us that He would be highly exalted and given a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every 
tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? That was the ultimate plan, wasn't it? You see, Christ states there, he was humiliated so that he might be what? Exalted. So that then the Father would be glorified and he glorified with the Father. You see, there is no cross of suffering. If there's no cross of suffering, there's no crown of glory. Suffering always precedes glory. That's a theme all throughout the Scriptures. And what is Christ's plan for us in our suffering? To bring us into that eternal glory with Him. Isn't that something to think about? This will blow our minds. I don't even know. When I read these verses, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I don't understand this yet. But there's so much more than what we know. Look at Romans chapter 8. This is the ultimate purpose for our suffering. And it's conditioned upon suffering. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. I, want, I do want you to turn here and see it. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children... Can you believe your eyes? What do we deserve? We deserve hell for our sin. And God brought us up out of that justified us, and made us His servants. And as if that weren't enough, He made us His children by adoption. And if that weren't enough, He brought us into His family and now He's calling us heirs. Heirs with Christ. And if that weren't enough, look what it says. That we would, fellow heirs, with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be what? Glorified with Him? How does that work? Talk about the riches of the grace of God to be glorified with Christ in eternity. No suffering, no glory. Did you see the condition? Verse 17, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, Fellow heirs with Christ provided what? What does it say? Provided we suffer with Him. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. What a glorious finale to your suffering for the sake of Christ and for His progress in your life. Christ's purposes through our suffering is to cause heaven to ring with the glory of perfect eternal love to the glory of the triune God forever for Himself and for you so that you will find your all in Him. To be where He is. To be accepted in the Beloved. To be where He is having endured through all the sanctifying sufferings of your life. 
Christ speaks of this future in John 17, verse 22 to 26. The glory that you have with have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ has shared with us the truth opened our hearts to it by the Holy Spirit. And through that truth, we've become changed to be more like Jesus and begin to share in His glory. And then when we are with Him, we'll be perfectly like Him and share in His glory, not for our own praise, but for His eternal praise, but for our joy. 2 Thessalonians 1, 10-12 puts this at a pinnacle. When He comes on that day, to be glorified in His saints. I'll say that again. We, we went through that text. I remember talking about it. To be glorified in His saints. That wording sets us up to be filaments for the glory of Christ. That we would reflect His glory, glow with His glory, be so much like Him that we enjoy what He enjoys. We enjoy the love of the Father to us the way the love of the Father is toward the Son. This is beyond anything we could ask or think. To be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. And so Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith with, by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in all of your suffering, think what is coming. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present lifetime are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.16-18, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How is it that we can look at our suffering and say, what's well, his light? Is that how you look at your suffering? This is light. This is just momentary. This is light. How do, we, how do we see it that way? By keeping in our mind that the glory that's coming will far exceed it in every way, in quality, and in quantity, and in time. It'll be timeless. This is why the Scriptures say things like 1 Corinthians 2, 6-9. through Among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. You see, rainy days will soon be over. Do you, do you realize that? 
Do we remember that in our suffering? Rainy days will soon be over. Don't overestimate them. Don't think more of your suffering than you do of your eternal joys, your communion with Christ, your crown by which you will bring Him honor and the triune God glory. You will be with Him. You will be there with the angels, enjoying and basking in the love and glory of God forever. Think what is coming. Think of heaven. We're just renters here. Your personal dwelling is reserved with God. Don't expect heaven on earth. There's only foretastes of heaven here. The reality comes later. The shepherd's rod has honey at the end. Philippians 3, 12-21, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that, what I have, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Why are we so earthly-minded? In so many ways. Sometimes we don't even realize it. We're like frogs in the pot. It creeps up on us, and pretty soon it fills our minds, and our attention is taken away from that which is most precious. But that's what afflictions are for. Help us to see what is in our minds and what's in our hearts so that we can learn to focus on the ultimate purposes and plan of Jesus Christ through our suffering. So consider Christ in all of your suffering. And don't rest in your suffering until you can rest in this, that for me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. See, all of you senior citizens, you've got a great advantage. Most likely, you're closer there. But then your suffering can be greater, can't it? And it can become very heavy. And so, this is a time for you to draw upon the sovereign grace of God who lives in your heart to take all of those sufferings that you experience, even daily, the daily pain, the daily heartache, and long for heaven. Long for heaven. You're almost there by the grace of God. He is the supreme glory. When you compare your suffering to the glory of eternity, your sufferings are very small. Think more of your eternal union with Christ. Here's a um, poem, a hymn. I've never heard of this one until I heard this particular message by Francis or Havergal. It's called Light After Darkness. Anybody know that song, Light After Darkness? Okay, here's a new one for you. I don't know the tune. 
And when I looked up the tune, someone who had written it wasn't a very good tune. So maybe someone out there can write a better tune for it. But it's good words. Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, hope after fears, home after wandering, praise after tears. Sheaves after sowing, sun after rain, sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last. Near after distant, gleam after gloom, love after loneliness, life after tomb, after long agony, rapture of bliss, right was the pathway leading to this. Now comes the weeping, then the glad reaping. Now comes the labor hard, then the reward. In all of your suffering, consider the final plan of Christ. As we close, let's consider this. Believers and unbelievers both experience suffering, yes? What's the difference then? And there is a chasmic difference, isn't there? The believer's suffering? The believer's suffering is applied by a fatherly hand of love and discipline in a relationship of grace, not by a punitive hand of judgment in a relationship of works. You must seal that in your mind. Those who are in Christ are never punished. For their sin. Why not? Because Christ has already received all the punishment. For those who are in Christ, their suffering comes from a hand of love, fatherly discipline in a relationship of grace. God grants to his children every good and perfect gift through suffering, the finality of which will be the eternal glory of heaven. So, dear ones, Consider Christ in your suffering. Never suffer the same again by God's grace. And these are things we must know and must think on and must meditate on because even as you're laying there, suffering in some way, you must be able by the Spirit of God to draw it to memory. Think of these things. The unbeliever's suffering? The unbeliever's suffering is the consequences of his sin. The earthly judgment of God, even. The hopelessness, the helplessness of the burden of the curse on fallen humanity. And truly, the unbeliever's suffering is a foretaste of eternal suffering under the wrath of God. How horrible to suffer as an unbeliever. The unbeliever can have no comfort in their suffering. So friend, if that's your condition today, before you can consider Him in all of your suffering, you must first look to Him for your salvation. Then you can consider Him in all of your suffering. Look to Him and be saved. Look to Christ. Jesus says in John 6.40, For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who looks on the Son with faith, looks on His righteousness and says, I have none, I need His. Everyone who looks on the atonement of Christ on the cross and says, I cannot balance my sin with good works. I need Christ to take the punishment for me. I can't appease God, a holy, perfect God who demands perfection. 
I need the cross. You look to Him. Look to His cross. Look to His righteousness. Look to His resurrection. And away from yourself. And away from your sin. And say, I will no longer live for my sin. I will live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You look to Him. He says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. There's a promise from Christ. Look. Look to Christ. You know, salvation is not a decision. Salvation is not complicated. It's looking to Christ. It's looking to Christ. Resting in His righteousness, in His death, in His resurrection, in who He is. Because if He is not your Savior, you will not be saved. But if you look to Him as your Savior, by the gift of faith that God will give you, He will raise you up on the last day. And then in all of your suffering, you can consider Him and find all of the strength and grace and help and wisdom and knowledge to endure that suffering and receive the reward that comes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us learn and labor by God's grace to consider Christ in all of our suffering. And have, having heard these words by God's grace, may we never suffer in the same way again. I want, I want to suffer differently, don't you? From, from the smallest parts of our suffering to the greatest that the Lord has in store for us. We walk the road to heaven behind Christ. And we will need to take up a cross, will we not? But as we do, we can look to him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we suffer so poorly. And therefore, we seems that we gain so little from our suffering. Father, change us. Give us perspective by your Spirit. Help us to zoom out and see eternity in our suffering. And to see Christ. We confess how worldly and weak we are in our suffering. And so we need Christ. So Father, we come to you pleading. Pleading that that you would make Christ to us all that he is. Make him to us all that he is. And remind us by your spirit. For the spirit has been given to us, Father. You, you have sent him so that Christ would be magnified to us. He doesn't speak on his own authority, but he delivers to us all of the mysteries of the Godhead that he is told to deliver. So Father, we ask that the Spirit of God, your Spirit, will remind us and help us in our weaknesses. That we would consider Christ. And Father, if there is a person here who does not yet know Christ as Savior and Lord, that they would not fear turning to Christ, but be compelled and begin to be at peace, to look to Christ, for in Him all fullness dwells and all salvation is there for us. We look by faith. 
Father, let us remember these words. Let the promises be precious to us. Let the preciousness of Christ be our treasure. Let his plentitude be our meditation. Let his purposes be our hope. And let his plan in our suffering fill our hearts with joy. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen.